Hello, Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the Asian Voices Radio Podcast, where you'll find real Asian American conversations, including all those topics you were too afraid to ask your Asian parents. I'm your host, Sasha Fu. Today, our special guest is Dr. Paul Song, and we'll be discussing the latest news and developments in the fight to contain the COVID-19 virus. By way of introduction, Dr. Song is a doctor whose specialty is radiation oncology. He has a strong commitment to advocacy and healthcare activism. He serves on such boards as Physicians for a National Health Program California and People for the American Way. And there's more. Last July, he started his own company. It's called Fuse Biotherapeutics, and his biotech company is presently developing transformative treatments for people with cancer. Welcome to the show, Dr. Song. Happy New Year, and it's great to be here. Gosh, what a long, strange trip this has been. Two years now fighting through the complexities of living with COVID-19. First, you know, there was the fear of contagion and then isolation and lockdown and all those scary things. And then we suffered through seeing millions of people become infected and some of them, of course, dying. Then a ray of optimism as the vaccines became available. But just as we were turning the corner, then we got hit with a new wave of variants. So I think right now, the question for so many of us, Dr. Song, is are we getting close to the end of this pandemic? Is there an end game in sight? Well, that's really what we're all hoping for. And um, it's still too soon to tell, but based on what's happened in South Africa and other countries that had the Omicron variant arrive much sooner, there is some feeling that this could be the start of some uh, dramatic change in um, numbers. Uh, what I mean by that is, up to now, between the number of people that were vaccinated versus those that weren't, there was still a lot of susceptibility for the virus to infect people and to mutate and uh, use the people who had not been vaccinated as sort of a, a petri dish to continue to mutate. Uh, but because Omicron has been so infectious, it really has not spared many people, including those who were vaccinated, although the severity of illness was far less. So the feeling is that with this Omicron variant really moving its way rapidly through the world, that in some way we are going to achieve herd immunity uh, much faster than we could have by the traditional vaccination methods. Um, having said that, there's always the possibility that there will still continue to be mutations and variants that will pop up from time to time. Uh, but I do think that between all the number of people that have been infected and exposed and vaccinated, we are moving closer to some sense of herd immunity right now. Dr. Song, I know you're a doctor and not a soothsayer or a fortune teller, and you don't have a crystal ball, obviously, but with vaccination rates here in the United States um, at less than 70%, just about 65 to 70%, uh, we still have a large portion of our population that's not fully vaccinated or protected against the virus, potentially, I guess, leaving the door open to the rise of other variants. Is that something of concern to you? It, it is, but because of the sheer infectiousness of the Omicron variant, um, we are sort of getting the remaining 30% uh, in some ways vaccinated just by getting infected. So, uh, and this is happening worldwide. 
the, the, the feeling is that Omicron, because it is so infectious, is going to expose uh, the majority of people who are currently unvaccinated, which will, again, allow us to achieve herd immunity a little bit faster uh, than trying to convince people to take the vaccine. So one way or another, either through vaccines or through the Omicron variant, the majority of people are going to get exposed and begin to develop immunity to this um, uh, variant. We've heard a lot of talk over the last two years about something called herd immunity. And I think people understand that term in different ways. Some people say, well, we can protect ourselves against getting the virus or having this become a prolonged pandemic if we have vast numbers of people who actually get sick. Now, I'm hearing that there are some people in the anti-vax groups who say, well, why are we having such an emphasis on mass inoculations? Some of them are saying, I don't think I need a vaccine because if I just go ahead and get sick, I will have developed the antibodies and the immunity to the virus. So why is there this obsession and concern about vaccines? What would you tell those folks? Well, uh, if you are young and healthy, uh, perhaps that might be reasonable, although you're starting to see more young and healthy people who are not vaccinated end up hospitalized. Uh, But I do think that the statistics are beginning to show that if you're not vaccinated, that your chance of ending up with a serious illness is far greater and the chances of you dying of this uh, virus are far greater than those people who are not. I do think taking uh, that risk is is unfortunate. Uh, obviously, it's a personal choice, but I do think that it's unnecessary to uh, potentially die. We I've seen uh, here in California there was a prominent uh, person who was running for office in Orange County uh, who was a well-known uh, district attorney uh, who was a prominent anti-vaxer who was only in her forties, and she passed away from getting infected. And we've heard all too many stories like that. So, um, you know, uh, I, I, I do think people need to realize that vaccines may not prevent you from getting infected, but they will greatly reduce the risk of you dying of uh, COVID if you get infected. Let's go back to the reasons that people frequently give for not wanting to get vaccinated. I've heard often that there's a lot of fear that these vaccines were hurried in development, that they were rushed to market, and a lot of people are making a lot of money, and therefore that was the incentive. So there's this belief that maybe the vaccines aren't as safe as they could be. One, how do we know it's safe? And again, when you begin talking about giving vaccines to children and have that as a requirement for them to attend school, Some people are really nervous and agitated, and they are really up in arms about that. What can you tell us about how thoroughly the COVID vaccines were researched and put through clinical studies before they were actually released to market? Well, I think the thing people need to understand is that the process was expedited, but not corners were not cut. Um, So prime example that if we didn't have a pandemic, and a biotech company was just trying to produce a vaccine on its own, it might take up to seven years from the time of the initial uh, thought about it to actually getting approved. Because at the time, uh, a company would have to do each step systematically. And once they passed the first step, they would then start the next and then start clinical trials uh, and so on. 
what happened in this case because of the pandemic was they all worked simultaneously. So in addition to the clinical trials, there's the preclinical work that's done with animal studies. And then you have to do all of the various uh, validation in humans and safety and such. Uh, and normally you have to wait for one to begin the other. Um, as far as the pre-development stage, um, each step was done at the same time, assuming that the step before it was going to be uh, val validated. So that's what really cut down the overall time of the development dramatically. Um, as the father of two young girls who have been vaccinated, I really had to look at the science myself because I was very concerned about what would be the potential side effects. Uh, and so I really carefully studied each of the, the, all the trials that were done in kids as well as in adults. And um, one, it was thousands of subjects that were uh, treated. They did all the right safety studies, very much like when I am trying to validate my cancer therapeutics to make sure that there was uh, safety, uh, both in terms of short-term, but also uh, long-term. Now, we don't have four or five-year follow-up, but certainly more than enough that made me feel comfortable that what uh, I was going to expose my children to was going to be safe. And in fact, they did uh, both have both uh, shots and are doing extremely well with no uh, side effects. But I do think for those people that remain skeptical, they should look at the actual published studies that were done, the sheer number of patients that were done, the side effect profile. It's very extensive and very thorough. And the FDA was paying very close attention to that. And I, I really do think there were no... Um, shortcuts taken as far as uh, allowing things to, to move forward that uh, any other drug would have been able to, uh, would have to go through the same scrutiny. So uh, that, that, that's the biggest thing I would tell people. The reason it was accelerated was just, uh, unlike if it was a standalone company that had to do each step by itself, the government gave grants to others to do steps at the same time. Okay. Well, I'm sure some parents would love to have that information. I really wish, Dr. Song, that there was some sort of central clearinghouse where you could obtain that kind of information where people could easily go to one site, do the reading, and self-educate. Because right now, there's just so much misinformation, so much disinformation that's being spread through social media and by some very popular radio and TV shows it can be very, very confusing because people are hearing all sorts of things. And I think what people really want are more clear answers. Uh, it seems in my observation that people trust their immediate circle for information and whether that's on Facebook or hearing people talk about it on a casual basis. So some of the things you know they're hearing is, could this be harmful to my children in the long term? Could this affect my chances to conceive a child, my fertility? All of this stuff is floating around and it's become deeply ingrained and deeply embedded and it's feeding on people's fears. It's really difficult, I think, to have a serious conversation between groups with opposing views. And... Aside from directing people, I guess, to read some sort of dry article about the medical research or the clinical studies, what can we do person to person? What can we do to overcome this divide? 
Well, unfortunately, it depends on where people get their news. And certainly on the social media platforms, as you point out, they have these algorithms that continue to feed the things that you believe in so that you'll stay on there much longer. Um, I've always taken the approach of being agnostic when it comes to science and um, treatments. As an oncologist, if I'm going to prescribe something for my patients, I really need to uh, have clear evidence that it works rather than go by any biases or preconceived notions. And that's the same thing I would say with regard to the vaccines and uh, and the overall treatment of COVID. I think it's become unfortunately too politicized. I was actually very uh, pleased to see former President Trump tout the vaccines recently, and, and rightfully so. He deserves a lot of credit for how quickly these were um, uh, uh, developed and accelerated approvals under his watch. And I wish people from both sides of the aisle could really uh, look at the science because the science really is sound. And um, and here you have the former president now uh, embracing and rightfully taking some credit for that. I want to shift our conversation now, Dr. Song, from science, the science alone, to the social impacts of the pandemic. I'd like to talk about a book called The Viral Underclass and the premise in the book that says we have a healthcare system in the United States with unequal access to care. And the last two years of going through the pandemic have only heightened the severe inequalities of these systems and that the ability to actually survive the virus has maybe less to do with biology alone and more to do with the environment or the social structures we're in. So my question is, now you sit on the boards of various groups whose mission is to reduce the unequal access to healthcare. Do you think then that this could be a moment that we can use a teaching opportunity to reform some of these social structures? Absolutely. It's a, it's a very important question. Um, and prior to the pandemic, I would tell you that I felt just as strongly about the inequities in healthcare, but the pandemic really magnified it. Uh, so let's start from the beginning. Many of the frontline workers, the people that are taking care of your grandparents in the nursing homes, uh, disproportionately tend to be uh, single women of color uh, who don't have insurance or not allowed to have days off. And, uh, and as a result, uh, they're much more likely to be exposed to the virus and not be able to take the time off to go seek the care to determine whether or not they're infected. Uh, as a result, uh, they could turn around and infect all of the seniors in the nursing homes. And, and, uh, uh, and then you look at frontline workers, whether it be f- food service workers, whether it be construction workers, these are all people that uh, had to work out, show up every single day, didn't have healthcare coverage. So, um, uh, and then on top of that, if you look at communities of color, uh, traditionally, they've had much poorer access to care. Either they are uninsured or have Medicaid, which makes uh, it, which is better than no insurance, but uh, makes it very difficult for them to find actual doctors that are willing to accept that type of uh, coverage. And if you look at the number of people who have uncontrolled diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension, they can't afford their medications. Um, they really do fall more on communities of color. And so when COVID came in, if you had a pre-existing condition, you were more apt or more likely to uh, succumb to COVID 
compared to somebody who uh, had insurance and had the medications to control their underlying condition. So we know that one of the predeterminants of how well you would respond to COVID was your zip code. Uh, the second thing is we know that from the Lancet Commission, which was uh, in t- uh, tasked by the uh, UN to do an overall study on COVID, found that uh, the, one out of three people who died died because they were uninsured, and there was a large percentage of those people here in the United States. Um, we need to realize that 871,000 people and counting have died as a result of COVID just here in the U.S. alone. And so when I hear people equate this to the flu, we don't see that many people die uh, a year. And uh, when people say, well, it wasn't COVID that died, uh, that killed them, it was they had a heart attack or something else. Well, here's the reality. Um, If they didn't have COVID, they wouldn't have ended up in the hospital uh, to begin with. And yes, they may have had some other underlying condition, but it's safe to say that without COVID, they probably, many of them would still be alive today. Um, what that also showed to me is that we don't do enough on preventative care. And again, that, that is really dictated by the lack of resources and commitment to uh, disadvantaged communities. So, um, and I think lies have been perpetrated by both sides of the aisle. Uh, during the Democratic debate, you had some senators when Senator Sanders talked about a Medicare for all plan say that it would kick uh, millions of people off their employer-sponsored health care. But the pandemic did that, right? You had um, how many, there were millions of people who lost their jobs and lost their health care accordingly, not to mention all the dependents in their household. You also had people on the right say that a socialized medicine system would lead to rationing of care. But we actually saw rationing of care. A lot of hospitals didn't have enough ventilators and a lot of respiratory therapists. So if you were in New York during the height of this, uh, chances are when you went to uh, an emergency room, if the ICU and the uh, ventilators were all booked, you didn't, uh, you were rationed. You, you didn't have the option for care. So it really exposed lies on both sides of the aisle and the need uh, for a better uh, healthcare system that, that really treats everyone equally. Uh, we can only hope for that. Unfortunately, it seems we're a long ways away from achieving that. It seems that there's just so much fighting, especially among our political leaders. They can't seem to agree on if or should we require companies to have employees get vaccinated or wear masks. Schools in particular have become really contentious battlegrounds. Should kids be required to be vaccinated and to wear masks when they're in school? What's really troubling I think, is that the arguments have become so heated and so virulent that no one is seems to be listening to anybody anymore. And who gets stuck, of course, in the middle? It's the kids. It's the students in school. So what could you suggest to find a way out of this contentious environment or find a way to have schools operate in the safest possible manner? It's really uh, uh, another great question. I think what we need is to to, build, to have some, uh, like a, a coming together of both sides. And that's why, again, I was very uh, happy to see former President Trump talk about vaccinations and getting boosters and really call out uh, people who were disagreeing with him, because that's how we start to develop more of a, a common ground. 
I worry about the effect on our kids um, as the father of a, a girl in kindergarten who has never gone to preschool or school without wearing a mask. She has never really seen her teacher's face uh, or been able to express or see her other kids' facial expressions other than what's expressed in the eyes. And I worry about the long-term repercussions of that, that we just don't know what will happen. Uh, for me, that was why it was even more important to vaccinate uh, my kids. And hopefully between that and increased testing, we can move to a school system where the kids can safely remove their masks and be able to really engage each other fully with facial expressions and everything, because that emotional social part is the part that I really worry the most about with, with my kids. Um, you know, unfortunately, you're going to have people that really are um, all about uh, personal individual freedom and um, at the expense of a general greater good. And until we're able to sh come together and show that we're all in this together, which sadly we just have not been able to, uh, I'm not sure we'll have a workable solution. But I am hopeful that in the next six months, at least with schools, that between the vaccinations and increased testing, that perhaps we could remove the masking at that particular point and that kids can return to a real sense of normalcy at that point. Dr. Song, what do you think about requiring vaccinations against COVID for children? Um, you know, we currently require school-aged children to get vaccinated for measles, mumps, and rubella and the like, but many parents are balking at that idea and they're saying, that's a bridge too far. I don't want the government telling me what to do with my child. Um, it, it is a it's a very challenging discussion that um, I've had actually with some of the parents in my own school. Um, they're very reluctant to vaccinate their kids here in the state of California. I think the governor is going to sign into law for all schools to mandate vaccines, and then that will become the law at least in California. Um, I, I do think that uh, for the safety and the greater good of kids, that we need to have some uniform standard. Like, I don't want my kids getting measles from some unvaccinated kid, uh, you know, in much the same way um, with COVID. But uh, again, we don't have the testing right now to offset uh, the lack of vaccination like they do. Think about the professional sports leagues. Uh, there are, are um, a requirement for athletes to get tested daily if they're not going to get vaccinated. Uh, maybe there'll be some sort of compromise or balance that can detect early infection in those that are not vaccinated so that they don't spread to others. Uh, but we just need a more comprehensive plan when it comes to kids. Uh, and I think that's now being worked out um, uh, between whether mandatory vaccination or uh, mandatory testing. I'd like to see uh, a combination of both, to be honest. Dr. Song, we were just touching on the sociological impacts of this prolonged social isolation and also the extraordinary health measures and also the upheaval in the labor market. You know, people working from home, trying to juggle working from home, teaching their kids at the same time, some people losing their jobs. What do you think might be the long-term impacts of this two-year period of just so much change, uncertainty, and definitely a constrained contact with each other? You talked about 
for instance, the effect on your kids when they weren't able to see their teacher's face because of the masks. Now, how do you think that all of this affects us as a society and as a people? Uh, I think uh, it's going to have a profound effect, uh, both in terms of uh, mental health. Uh, I think the degree of depression, of actually suicides, also um, among uh, substance abuse has increased during this period of time. Uh, on top of the fact that we are uh, more divided as a nation than we have ever been. Um, and, and, and I do think among um, the stress that most families feel, particularly if you are trying to work and still uh, now your kids are at home, um, there's just been tremendous stress where I think our society is uh, operating on such a heightened stress. But uh, unfortunately, I do know some people that who um, have family members that committed suicide over the last uh, two years, uh, some other people that have relapsed into their addictions. Uh, and and um, it's, it's, it's definitely going to have long-term um, residual effects. Uh, I, I do think that we need to do a better job of talking about mental illness, of having uh, resources available for people who are feeling that way. Uh, I know a lot of people who are single who have been living at ho home in isolation, not being able to go visit their family members. And you can see how uh, profoundly they've been depressed. It's one thing to do it for a couple of months. Wow, this might be uh, great to be in a little bit of an isolation. But you know, going into this now third year, I think it's, it's understandable that we as a nation are um, stressed, depressed, and, and um, really uh, not in the best emotional state. And that's really part of my next question, Dr. Song, looking at the, the long-term impacts, not only the social and cultural effects. Do you think our mental health and our medical care systems are prepared for the lingering effects of COVID-19, what some people have been calling long COVID, um, the physical manifestations, but also the psychological impacts? I... I see a lot of people walking around, you know, maybe they're not physically damaged from the, or, or feeling the physical effects of COVID now, but psychologically walking, the walking wounded, they haven't fully recovered from this extended period of isolation and they're profoundly depressed. I think we're going to need a lot more resources poured into these sectors. And, and I don't see anyone ringing the bell for that. You're absolutely right. Um, so prior to COVID, there weren't enough mental health um, uh, facilities or uh, opportunities for people to access. Uh, part of that is with our insurance system, they traditionally have not done a great job of paying for mental health services. And then you take on uh, top of that roughly 30 million people that are uninsured in the United States. Uh, and uh, if you look at the homeless situation that has really ballooned uh, throughout the country, uh, uh, there's still a large percentage of those people that have mental illness that are not uh, afforded the treatment or the care that they need. So even if you find housing for our unhoused, if you do not give them the uh, proper uh, resources to deal with the underlying mental illness, they many of them go straight back to being unhoused. Uh, as far as long COVID, uh, I had COVID myself about 18 months ago and <clears throat> was suffering from 
even though my case of COVID was was mild, um, had persistent vertigo, persistent insomnia, and there are times that definitely can make you uh, depressed. And uh, <clears throat> that's the thing with so many people exposed to COVID. We talk about the number of people who passed away, but the long term survivors. I know quite a few people that are dealing with uh, a lot of the issues much worse than I've had it. Uh, and you can see they clearly are depressed. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. I think that um, we do need to call for greater uh, mental health support for uh, both the general population, but especially those who are recovering from COVID. You know, there are so many profound changes that have resulted from the pandemic. We see the restaurant and hospitality industry, for instance, that's been devastated. People have left that industry in droves. Either they're reluctant to come back for fear of being infected, or many have moved into other jobs. I'm also hearing lately that the nursing home industry is really under siege in terms of finding personnel and keeping them. <laughs> it's hard to say, but do you think there is a bright spot in any of this? Is it possible that we've learned anything or something that can take us through what might be the next pandemic? It's a, another great question. I think a couple things I would say to that is um, everyone complains about uh, the stimulus checks uh, incentivizing people to stay home and not work. Uh, but we know right now unemployment is at the absolute lowest it's been in a long time. I think last it was under 4%. Meanwhile, during this pandemic, you saw you know billionaires increase their wealth profoundly, like uh, uh, the amount of money that they made during that period of time. So one thing that I think that is positive is because there has been such a tightened workforce is it's caused wages to go up quite a bit. The Federal Reserve said that wages have gone up quite a bit over the last year and a half. We still have not raised the national minimum wage, but certainly for many of these jobs that they have to pay more to be competitive. And I think that as people's stimulus checks have started to dry up, you are seeing more and more people return to the workforce. And, and I think it's unfair to say all of them were just lazy because they got their stimulus check. I think a lot of people just didn't want to take the risk of getting infected. You have to realize the, the frontline workers, many of them are living in generational households where they live with their parents, grandparents, and to get infected and bring that back to uh, their households. That's another reason why you saw more infections in, uh, in disproportionately in uh, disadvantaged communities. But now that there has been vaccinations and, and things, I think you're starting to see more of those people return back to the workforce. But when I hear people say, well, it's getting too expensive to hire these people, you're looking at maybe an extra dollar, $2 an hour, but yet you have all of these people that made you know, billions and billions of dollars in, in a couple of days just by uh, you know, the, the Tesla stock going up or Amazon stock going up. And so I think we need to put it all in some greater perspective. That and you mentioned nursing homes, and again, I, I just want to go back to that because, you know, the average uh, worker in a nursing home is making a little bit more than minimum wage. They're being asked to take care of two, three, four, five seniors uh, by themselves with no sick leave, no uh, really um, healthcare insurance, and uh, it's it's really a thankless job. So if we can see 
uh, better treatment, uh, better care uh, for them, then they can turn around and take better care of our, our seniors as well. Dr. Paul Song, I want to thank you for your very thoughtful and comprehensive answers. I have a ton of questions to ask, more questions to ask, but we've run out of time. Uh, so thank you. Thank you again. To learn more about the work that Dr. Paul Song is involved with, do you have a website to suggest? Yes. For those that want to learn more about our healthcare system and, and possible solutions, I would ask you to, to go to www.pnhp.org, uh, physiciansfornationalhealthprogram.org. Uh, but thank you so much for having me on and grateful for all your questions. Again, thank you, Dr. Song. If you have any suggestions for future topics, we would love to hear from you. Also, be sure to subscribe as well as follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next week, I'm Sasha Fu, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Please join us next week for another exciting and thought-provoking Asian Voices radio show. Until then, Happy New Year, and take care, everyone.